If not, if you have a Bible and you'll read along with us, we're going to take two scripture readings this morning. One will be found in Genesis chapter 40, and the other one will be found in Psalm 105. So I'll give you a moment to turn to both of those. Genesis chapter 40, we're only going to read one verse in Genesis chapter 40, and then we'll turn to Psalm 105 and read there. So, Genesis chapter 40, reading the very last verse of that chapter, verse 23. Speaking of Joseph, it says this. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. I'll conclude that reading. And if you look at Psalm 105, it adds to that same thought. And we're going to look at verse 17, verses 17 through 19. So again, verses 17 through 19. Of Psalm 105. Says this He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters, he was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And then I'll conclude our reading uh, for this morning. For those of you that are just coming here for the first time in the last few weeks, um, felt inclined a few weeks ago to start um, preaching and on this story of Joseph about forgiveness. And as I was studying that, it didn't seem as though I'd be able to finish that in one Sunday. And so um, for the last three weeks, we've kind of been going through this story and looking at different aspects of this story. And feel inclined to do that this morning, uh, continue to do that, and we'll also make some comments about what we'll be observing later today and relate this story to that because I think there's a definite correlation. Nonetheless, um, the first week that we began looking at this story, we talked about the sin that was involved in this story. And primarily in looking at that, we talked about how you can't control or possibly know the effects that that sin is going to have and who it's going to impact. Last week, we continued and we talked about the pain and the scars that will last from that sin. And we went through this story and we observed some different things that the scriptures have left for us about the pain, who was hurt, how they were hurt, and then the lasting scars that though the wound is not fresh and maybe if you push upon it, I have a scar on my wrist and I can push on it. Um, And it doesn't hurt, but the ugly is still there. Nobody brags about a scar, what it looks like, because it's still a blemish. And today, we're going to continue along those line of thought, except today what we're going to talk about is trauma. Trauma. And so the, the title of our message this morning is Our Response to Trauma. Now, this was a thought three or four weeks ago that as I was studying this 
really jumped out to me for a number of reasons. And the first reason is because I had never heard it preached on myself. That doesn't mean nobody preaches on I just, I haven't heard it preached on. And yet, trauma is a very real thing. There are things that have happened and in your life, perhaps, that have been traumatic. Those can involve life and death situations where perhaps I think of our last pastor here, Brother Swindle and Sister Marisa, and they experienced trauma. Some of you have experienced life and death situations where you really thought in a moment of time you were about to face God or someone you love was about to face God. And then all of a sudden, the circumstance changed, and yet that situation has had a ripple effect upon you. That because of the intensity of the physical response and the emotional preparation that you were thrust into in that moment, it still is impacting you. There's that type of trauma. There's other type of trauma. There is a type of trauma where people's behavior impacts us. So I think of something like a divorce. That can be traumatic. You can have parents who neglected you for a prolonged period of time. And as a kid, you were left in this uncertain position for a long time. And then as you begin to develop on your own and and mature and grow, some of those fears are rekindled periodically and it has left a traumatic or had a traumatic impact on how you've developed and how you think and how you develop relationships with people. And this is one of those topics that I feel as though the world will say Or rather, when we experience things like this, this is very often where the Christian departs from depending upon the words of Scripture for how to respond. Because very often the way the Scriptures and the way church is projected is, this is a good book of instruction when we're living normal life. So how do I have a family? And how do I discipline my children? And and how do I have a job, and how do I treat my employees? That's what the Bible is about, how to worship. But listen, I believe the Bible, or in the doctrine of the sufficiency of scriptures, or in other words, the Bible is sufficient for everything we experience in life. The greatest successes in life, the Bible governs our actions, our thoughts. And the deepest lows in life, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear as to how to respond. But yet, before we start this message, I want to set a tone for going into this. Because this morning, we're going to give you principles that we learned from the story of Joseph. And yet, as we approach this topic, we must do it with two attitudes of mind and heart. And one is humility. It is easy when we're not in the midst of a traumatic experience to prescribe to people what they need to do. 
And from our vantage point, it just seems so easy. I suppose one of the things as you get older that ought to happen as you mature, both in your relationship with God, but just as you mature as a human being, is that naturally you ought to become less judgmental of people. Because the more of life that you live and the more experience that you have going through the very real pain and hardship and sometimes trauma of this life and the way that you respond, not in accordance with how you thought you would have responded if you had gone through that situation, the more it ought to cause you to be humble. Because I have found myself and I have seen other people who during periods of hardship respond in ways that I never would have guessed they would have responded Or I responded in ways I never would have guessed. And the perpetual effect it has had on me or it has had upon them left me a little in awe. And yet, that awe is stunted by the realization that what we experience is very powerful. Those emotions and temptations are extremely potent while we've experienced trauma. I shared with you before, I remember the day my dad said to me about a situation, but for the grace of God, there go I. And at that moment when I was just a teenager, my mind was in a place of skepticism and criticism of someone. And when he said that, it stuck with me. Except for the grace of God, that would be me. And so as we talk about this situation, the first one I want to, thing I want to say is we need to do it in humility because the very things that I'm prescribing you this morning, I may be tempted or even violate this evening had I had a situation of trauma. I don't want to. And we'll get into it doesn't justify it. But I recognize that I can speak things much greater than who I am. I can prescribe things that require much more strength than what I possess. And so the first thing is we want to prescribe these things in humility. Praying that God would help us to apply these truths if we were ever faced with situations like this. And the second tone that we want to put forward this morning is graciousness. Graciousness. Again, we ought to be very careful when we judge another man's life or situation. Because certainly you know by now, and if you don't, if you're a young person, you don't know this, there's always more than meets the eye to a situation. Always. And people do things and respond in ways that may not be in accordance with what you think, I would give them the benefit of the doubt and grace. And if you see that they're acting in sin, allow that glance of judgment to be a prayer of grace. God, help them. They are doing wrong. But again, but for the grace of God, there go I. That could be me. And I may have delve deeper into depravity than what they are doing at this moment. And yet I say all that and still balance that with the reality of 
the principles the Bible lays out are still true and right and we ought to do them. Even in the midst of trauma. And I hope you can see that balance this morning. Is that the Bible does give us direction and clarity as to how we need to live life in all circumstances. And when we're prescribing that to people in moments of peace and not during times of war, it's easy to get very trite and very condescending about what they need to do. And then when we're going through it, it's very easy to let emotion govern what we do, where we say, you know what? Those people just don't understand. I'm going to live. I'm going to do what I feel. And yet there is a balance that is required for all of us both going through trauma and those of us trying to help others go through trauma. And that is we need to be gracious and humble as we help people. But also while we're going through it, we need to know that there is a set of principles that God has given us. And though our emotions are striving to deceive us, to cause us to sin, we need to fight and grapple as much as we can to live in accordance with what God has commanded us to do. And balancing that in the moment is very, very difficult. And so I'm not this morning going to get up here on a high horse and say, you know what, you just do this, and if you don't, you're sinning. And at the same time, I'm not going to lean towards somebody's emotions and say, well, it's okay that you acted that way. You sinned because you were feeling all of these things, and this terrible situation you went through, it makes it okay. It doesn't make it okay. The world's psychological approach to trauma today is to justify people's actions based upon potent, powerful emotions. And they say, if you're feeling this way and it feels uncontrollable, just do it. Just say it. And that is wrong. That is wrong. We cannot allow our emotions to just be in charge. And I think, and especially for those of you that tend to be more cerebral, don't be deceived into thinking that your emotions aren't at the helm more than what you think. Our emotions govern our behavior, even those of us that tend to be uh, uh, more logically oriented, less emotive. Right? Being emotional and emotive are two different things. Emotive is you're acting out, they're coming out. But just because you've put a damper on emotions to where they don't surface as much does not mean you don't make emotional decisions. Because what I have found Satan do in my own life is cloak my emotion in logic. Really what is driving the bus, really what is driving me is emotion. But I just come up with all of these logical explanations to justify acting out of emotion. And so as we go through this, let us all, regardless of where we fall on the continuum of personality, say, this is me. And I need to hear what the scriptures speak as to how I respond during hard times of trauma. The world will say, let your emotions control. The unwielding Pharisee legalist scripturally will say, this is how you need to act, completely condemn emotion. And there's a balance here. Here, 
we read about in this story, I want to bring you to date real quick with the trauma he's experienced thus far. And as I consider this, I can only speak to my, for myself. I have never experienced anything close to as traumatic as what Joseph went through. I think I have gone through traumatic experiences at times. Nothing like this. And I would ask you to consider if you feel tempted to disregard the principles we learn from the scriptures here, consider for a moment whether you have been through anything near what Joseph went through. Because I think for the most of us, we could say we have not been anything anywhere close to this. He has been betrayed by his brothers almost to death. His brothers have almost killed him. So think if somebody tried to kill you. That would have a traumatic effect. And yet that's one of the least things that happens to Joseph here. He separated from his family with no expectation of ever being reunited. I've shared with you before, when I go to Africa, I spoke to a brother this morning who's going to be in Africa for 15 days. You know what his biggest fear is? Not seeing his family. Being separated, and then there's nothing you can do about it. That'd be a pretty traumatic experience, wouldn't it? Especially after five years passed, and then a decade passes, and you've still not ever seen your family, and you were abruptly, unexpectedly taken off. He's gone through some trauma. He was human trafficked. That's what we call it today. Right? I think the term slavery today just is an antiquated term that we don't associate with. It just doesn't fit as much today. We call it human trafficking. Where you kidnap somebody and you sell them for a purpose other than, or you just take away their freedom. You make them a slave. He was human trafficked. And he was taken to a foreign land And forced against his will to live subordinate to the wishes of another. All the while, he does not know what they're saying or what they're talking about. They speak a different language than he does. And so the fear. Now remember, amidst all of this, he's still emotional. Right? We talked about last week. He's being taken away and he is crying out to his brothers. The text tells us that. He is screaming, please help. Stop. Stop. Right? So we know that he's feeling all this intense emotion. Then he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. And by his actions, he reaches a place of, that is tolerable, it seems to me. He's the head of Potiphar's affairs. It seems like he's adjusted as much as you can. And then he's falsely accused of something. Or... Let's say in modern language, he's wrongfully convicted. Don't they make documentaries about that now? A person who goes to prison that was falsely accused and wrongly convicted, and then they get punished for it, and then they get out and they go make their rounds on all the talk shows. And everybody wants to know, what's it like to be falsely convicted and spend time in prison when you didn't belong there? This is what happens to Joseph. And then finally, he's forgotten. He's in this prison cell. He's given the hope of getting out. And for two years, somebody had made a promise to him that he was going to get out. And that's where we, why we read the text that we did. You remember the chief butler? He forgets him. I read verse 23 of Genesis chapter 40 because to me, this point right here is the lowest he ever got. That's my assessment. All of this trauma has occurred and he's thinking he's going to have a hope out. And then they forget about him and he's stuck. 
And then we read to 105 and it says, he was put in prison. He was held in the stocks. And he was, his soul was plagued with what God had revealed was going to happen. And none of that is coming to pass. And at these moments in prison, he is hopeless. Or at least it would appear that way. Now, I want to talk for a little bit about emotion. Our emotions as we go through trauma. They're wild animals, aren't they? When you're going through a traumatic experience. Aren't they almost impossible to control? For some more than others. Now I'll say this. A lot of what I'm talking about this morning will differ based on personalities. God's made us all very uniquely different. What I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning is how Joseph chose not to respond. And how those responses that we're going to talk about this morning, almost, they are natural. They're natural responses based on your personality that you have to trauma. Now the first thing we learn or that we can glean is that he does not respond the way his brothers do. Out of anger. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but remember, his brothers get really angry, and what do they do? They go and they seize him, and there are many of us this morning that have a propensity towards anger. Is that when the world is not aligned exactly the way you think it should be, the first emotion that bubbles up is anger. And I don't doubt, though it does not explicitly tell us that Joseph felt anger, but what we can see is that he did not respond from anger. Now listen, we cannot control the feelings of anger. You're going to feel anger from time to time when injustice occurs, whenever things are done to you that are malevolent. And you begin to reason through what's been done and you see the pain or the injustice that was performed or you feel it and you feel angry. And yet in all the anger, even getting to the point of rage, that does not justify in any way, no matter what has been imposed upon us, it does not justify acting in an irrational, immoral sense because of our anger. And Joseph here does not allow anger to control him. There is not a part of the whole narrative where anger comes out, at least not that I can find. And so for those of us that are high-tempered, those of us that tend to verbally, I'll I'll often say to my children, sometimes my mouth works faster than my brain can stop. Right? If you have somebody, you're a fluid speaker, sometimes it just comes out. Right? Joseph here, no part during the narrative, does anger grip him. What else doesn't Joseph do? This is a common one today. He does not get rejected and depressed and take a who cares anymore attitude. Now this is something that I I saw a whole lot teaching. When I was a teacher, I taught seniors in high school. And by this point, many of them have been through things they should never have been through. They've watched parents go through nasty divorces. They've been put in positions that they should never be put into. And I won't go through the whole litany of things that kids today are experiencing, but terrible things. 
and especially the young men, but also the young women, there would come a point at times where when they became a senior in high school, they took this attitude, who cares anymore? doesn't matter. And so every area of their life, there was no life to them. There was no motivation. There was no desire to love their neighbor, to do good to those who do good to them or even evil to them. There was no reciprocation in relationships. So if I, as a teacher, came over and tried to start a conversation with them, they just had almost a sign written on their face that said, leave me alone. And at first, as I began to teaching, I didn't realize what that was. But as time went on, what I began to learn is that is a protective mechanism from trauma very often. Is they have gone through some horrible things. And when they were younger, they were emotionally taking all of that in. And it became so painful to them, they could not deal with it anymore. And so what they did is they detached from relationships. Because they looked at everyone as someone who could prey upon them and hurt them. And so if I never get close to you, if I never open up, if I always stay aloof, you can't damage me anymore like those people most close to me did. Now, he had all the reasons to do that. His own brothers, those that he grew up with, probably slept in the same room with, had been the ones that had in rage almost killed him and sold him to slavery. And they were callous to his cries. And Joseph had all the reason in the world to grow depressed and rejected and say, who cares about life anymore? I'm just a slave in the middle of Egypt. My life will never amount to anything. That is not the way to respond to trauma. Listen to me, no matter what you feel and what previous blessings have been removed from you, God has a purpose for your life. Always. God, as long as you are breathing, God has a purpose for your life. And do not be deceived by the conditioning in our culture is that if you can immediately see the purpose, there isn't one. If you can't immediately know why you're suffering, then there isn't a reason. Because for Joseph, it's not going to be revealed for 13 years, 15 years, why he's gone through this. But listen, all the while, we'll get to this next week, all the while, Joseph believes there's a reason why I'm here. I don't understand it, but there's a reason. So young men today... It is a temptation. I know a lot about this one because I did this one. I just pushed people away. See, that's, that's the third one we're going to talk about today. What do other people do? They put up a wall, become emotionally calloused, and wall people out. That's how they handle trauma. They don't want close friendships. They don't confide in people. They don't subject themselves to the instruction of other people on a personal basis. They do it with people they don't know. Here's what I mean. I get on YouTube today, and I can learn a whole lot. I can open up an author, and I can learn a whole lot. And I never know that person, personally. But I feel like I do. 
And so I can feel like, you know what, I'm getting all this instruction. They're kind of mentoring me. And yet I don't even know them. And it's a substitute. And it's a way to be able to keep people out. Because again, I just don't want to, I was hurt. And this is especially the case with kids who are hurt. They get to be adults. They never want to be hurt again. And they, they wall people out. Now, here's what we learn about Joseph. He didn't do that. We know that. Because the text gives us all of this information. So the first thing is when he comes into Egypt, he doesn't take a who cares attitude, does he? Now, what does he do? He applies his best to what he has been made the steward over in Potiphar's house. And so he cares about Potiphar's things. And he begins to manage those as he was managed his father's belongings. And then when he is tempted to violate Potiphar's trust in the most personal way, he does not indulge himself as tempting as it might be, but he actually responds to Potiphar's wife and he says, he has trusted me with all things. How could I do this to him? I can do anything I want with anything else. But what he's implying through his response is, I care about Potiphar and I'm not going to treat him that way. You see, there is still an emotional relationship that he has. There's still a responsibility that he has to his master. He's not rejected and giving up on life. Because every step of the way, he is stewarding what God has made him responsible for to the utmost of his ability. And that's something that doesn't get preached about a lot or talked about about a lot. But listen, we are obligated. The Bible commands us that in whatever realm God has placed us in, we're to do all things to the best of our ability to glorify God. When I am being a parent, when I am being an employee, it is easy to begin to think I am serving my master. I am serving my employer. That's not the first person you're serving in your deeds. You're serving the Lord. So if you're a computer nerd and you're coding all day, code to the best of your ability. If you're a factory worker and you're adding one little piece onto a bigger mechanism and all day long you touch thousands of pieces... Do it to the best of your ability because no, God sees in your heart when you are trying to serve people to the best of your ability in order to honor him, that is a form of worship that you can give to God. Because the attitude of your heart is, God, I am serving you. I am an ambassador for you. And I want people to see that those who serve you serve their masters to the best of their ability. Joseph does that, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, you know, there's a a sinful attitude today in schools today that if you're not the genius that's going to go on to college and and do all these things, you're just going to get an entry-level job, that, well, who cares? That's sin. That's a sinful attitude to have. It's not who cares. It's not whatever. Even despite what Joseph went through, He is going to do whatever he's going to do the best that he can do it. He doesn't become rejected. He doesn't wall people. He doesn't become uncaring to people. 
where I don't care about anybody else's feelings or emotions. No, he cares about Potiphar's, right? That's the first people he cares about. He cares about those men in prison. They're talking about a dream, and he comes over there, and he wants to help them, right? Well, let me hear it. God is the one that gives answers to all dreams. God knows all things. Let me see if I can help you. Then he's willing, as he stands before Pharaoh, he cares about the Egyptians. God reveals to him this dream. Seven years, there's going to be plenty. Seven years, there's going to be famine. And he doesn't just say, you know what? I'm going to care for myself. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to plan for my and me. Or you know what? These Egyptians deserve it. I've been mistreated by Potiphar, one of the leaders of their military. I'm not going to tell him what the meaning of the dream is. I'm going to let them suffer. That's not his attitude at all, is it? No. He he willingly helps. He doesn't detach from people so he can't get hurt. Rather, he puts himself in a place where he can actually get killed, right? He had just been in the dungeon. He'd just been in the prison with a person who had violated the trust of the king. That's a pretty precarious place to be, right? Close to the king. If you do something wrong, I might end up like them. And he was hanged. I might get put to death. He doesn't let fear govern him. No, he allows himself to build relationships. He allows himself to show love and kindness. He helps people all the way from being a slave to be a prisoner to being the second in command in all of Egypt. Notice about Joseph, his character remains the same the whole time. Why? Because listen to this. We are accountable for our actions and we are accountable for our reactions. The world will maybe tell you you're accountable for your actions, but usually they'll soften the blow of our reactions. And they'll say, you know what? I understand why you did that. You were feeling all these ways and you had this reaction and that's okay. No, it's not. Because in all of our actions and in all of our reactions, we are accountable to God. All the while. He does not wall people off, keep people out. No, he continues living life to the best of it. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't feel emotions, because he does. He feels these things. All through the text, it's amazing how he feels things as he's sold into slavery. He feels things when he gets in prison. That's what Psalm 105 tells us. It tells us in the original Hebrew that his soul was kept in prison. His soul was. That to me is telling me he's feeling that. He's feeling hopeless in prison. His brothers stand before him and what does he have to do? Three times step out of the room and just bawl like a baby. Cry. He's feeling these things, but they are not in charge of who he is. Here's another thing that he doesn't do. At least we don't have evidence of him doing this. He does not use his traumatic experience to get advantage over other people later in life. I call this the advantage card. Where they feel like, if, for example, let's say somebody came to me for counseling, and they said, you know, I'm going through this in my marriage, I'm going through this with my children, or so on. And then my response to them is, well, you just have no idea. Listen to what I've been through. And you trivialize, 
and you nullify the pain, the serious experience that they're having because of what you've been through. And you're always looking for a place to drop that. Because in the end, what it is, it's a, it's a, it's a pride. It's a way to develop superiority to people that you will never suffer like I did. He doesn't do that. When they're going through famine, he doesn't do that. He never, throughout his experience, actually what he does is the complete opposite. His brothers come into town and you know what he does to his brothers? And we'll, we'll talk about this next week. One of the things he does is he sends them to prison for three days. I think I know why he did this. I don't know. But I think part of the reason is because he was letting them experience just a part of the pain that he had experienced. So that when he reveals himself to them, they had just a taste of what the awfulness of an Egyptian prison felt like. Talk about that some later. He doesn't use it as an advantage card. Here's the last thing he does not do. He does not let those who did it off the hook. In our culture, we have this really awful way of doing things whenever we're, we have a conflict with somebody and we're trying to resolve it. Is we don't like, it, it feels, it's been projected to us as arrogant if I expect an apology, I expect a repentance from you. And so oftentimes what happens, even with our children, here's what we'll tell them to do. Go tell them you're sorry. And the other kids are supposed to say, it's okay. All the while, neither one of them have a repentant attitude or even the one who has been wronged isn't concerned whether the person has repented at all or not. We just want to get the episode over with because there's a discomfort there. We shouldn't do that. And if there's one thing that we learn from the story of Joseph, he doesn't do that. It's fascinating how many hoops he requires his brothers to jump through. And we'll talk about, I think, why next week. Why does he make his brothers do all these things? But one thing that we notice here is he does not just hurry up and get it over with. Right? His brothers walk up to get grain and he recognizes them. And he's sitting there and he, he recogni- they don't recognize him because he's in a much different place than what he was 15 years ago. But he recognizes them and he doesn't say, hey, I'm your brother Joseph. Hey, it's me. I've forgiven you. Or you need to tell me you're sorry. He didn't do any of that. He wants to see that they have truly repented and made things wrong right with God. Because listen, when I sin against you, as David eloquently puts it in the Psalms, I have first sinned against him. I've sinned against God. And if I have sinned against you, and you love your enemy at this moment, if you really love me, you want to ensure that I have made things right with God. You don't want me to have never repented of my sins to God, but now me and you are okay. Because my fellowship to you is very secondary to my fellowship with God. And me and you will truly never be able to be restored until both of us, if we have done wrong, have been reconciled to God. And so when somebody has wronged you, don't prematurely seek them out just to get the awkwardness over. Don't do that. People need to feel convicted for their sins enough 
that they repent towards God and are willing to come to the one they have wronged and ask humbly for forgiveness. It's necessary for their walk with God. Joseph, the last thing he does not do is he does not run up and just tell them, oh, it's okay. Sin is not okay. Especially it is a malignant thing today. When we do that, when we know the person has not had a change of heart. I I mean, again, I'm guilty of this with my my children. Whenever a kid walks to the hallway and says to their brother or to their sister, screams at them, I'm sorry. In this flippant tone. All the while we know their anger hasn't even peaked yet. They're just waiting for a moment to lash out again. Listen, that's not okay to let them off the hook. Because, hear me today, please. If we teach them with human interaction that that's okay, how do you think they're going to translate that to when we start talking about repentance and forgiveness between them and God? Everything we do on a micro level between one another ought to be intended to mirror how God does things with us so that when adults or children are trying to comprehend these eternal truths, it's a very easy picture they can see based upon how we act and how God treats them. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. Ephesians 4 tells us to forgive one another even also as Christ has forgiven us. Let me ask you this. Has Christ ever forgiven anybody who has not repented of their sins? No. Has Christ ever forgiven somebody that looked at him and said, God, look at all I've been through. I know I've done a few things wrong. I'm sorry. God doesn't forgive people like that, does he? No, he forgives people who humbly confess and recognize that their sin has separated them from God, that they are responsible and they plead with God for forgiveness. That's whom God forgives. And perhaps one of the deceptions Satan has placed upon our culture is that since we forgive that way, we think God does as well. That's why all these churches are walking around saying, just come up and accept his forgiveness. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In what world, in what realm do we just suppose the perpetrator accepts forgiveness? Right? If a man goes and murders uh, someone's family... Do we just tell him to go to the courtroom and accept the forgiveness? No. It's the offended party that extends forgiveness. Right? What Joseph does not do is in a moment to avoid an awkward encounter, just say, let's get past all this, I forgive you. Now, what does he do? He sets the table to deal with the sin head on. And when we get to the end of the story, is there any doubt in our minds that they have fully repented of their sins and that there is complete restoration that has occurred between them and God? I say no. I say that they have. And to me, it becomes evident. Now, again, why is this so important? How do we relate this even to what we're doing this morning? Because that's, these are some of the thoughts that I had is this is an important thing that we're doing here. And I think, to me, it falls very much in line with the midst of this story and what is going on here. 
is here in this story, we find a man who has been punished, a man who has been wrongly treated. And as I often like to imagine myself in the narrative, I like to imagine myself as Joseph. And yet if we take ourselves in a broader view, where are the brothers? Where are the perpetrators? Towards whom? Towards Jesus. And it is our sin that has separated us from God. The reason why Joseph had gone all of these things is two reasons. It was the will of God and the sins of his brothers. And Christ has suffered for those same two reasons. Because it was the will of God. And it was because of our sins that he suffered. And as we get to the end of Joseph's story, his brothers are absolutely distraught that they had made their brother suffer so terribly. And their guilt and their fear and their feelings are real because of what they have done to their brother. And over and over it bubbles up in the story the guilt that they feel for what they have done. And here we gather at the Lord's table. And whereas baptism and worship services are often oriented in a sense of it's celebratory, right? On Easter, in a baptism, we celebrate what Christ has done for us in conquering sin, that our sins did not make us ultimately responsible for the punishment that we deserve, that somebody took upon us our sins, and then taking that upon us, he has rescued us from the danger of sin. Because that's exactly what happens in this story. Joseph's brother's sins cause him to be sold into slavery, and then it is that very man that saves them from destruction. And as we gather this morning, is that not what we celebrate? Isn't it a strange thing? I've always felt like, and maybe you can help me to understand this better, The Lord's Supper feels very strange to me. I feel in conflict within myself. Because here I am drinking and eating to his death. And as I'm taking this, I'm thinking about the fact that it is because of my sins that he was tortured dramatically upon that tree. And yet, I am eternally grateful that he had to endure all that. And then he was risen to second in command and given the power to save many people alive, just like Joseph. So for me, when I come to this table, there's this deep conflict that exists. I would imagine it's very similar to how the brothers felt once they moved into Goshen. Because Joseph was too good to them, you know? Like, remember in the very end when he reveals himself, he says, bring father, bring Benjamin, my younger brother, or excuse me, bring, bring everyone. I'm going to put you in Goshen. And then he begins to describe Goshen. He says, it's the best part of all of Egypt. It's the most fertile. I want you to come and live here. And as I step to the Lord's table... And I consider my sin, all of the people and things that it impacts, and the incredible forgiveness that Christ extends to all of those who come to him, 
And then the eternal benefit of God saying, come to Goshen and enjoy all the provision you could ever want. I feel this deep sense of gratitude and thankfulness in tucked within this grief that I know I have caused God. Could there be any doubt as Joseph sat at that table with his brothers? It was interesting. He numbers them. He puts them from oldest to youngest around the table. And they're, they're bewildered. How does he know this much about us? We're all here in that order. How could he possibly know as the second in command in, in Egypt who we are and why we're here? And as we sit king's table and remember from that day forward he's going to do that they're going to sit at at his table and sup with him and enjoy the privileges of the of the kingdom and the only thing they have done to deserve that is that they just happen to be related to someone with immense forgiveness as i come to the lord's table today as I consider this story of Joseph, I see a compatibility here. And I, I understand that Joseph's whole story is just a type, just a picture of what Christ has done for us. And all the trauma, all the pain that we have imposed upon him, he allows us to gather and in harmony and in peace mourn our sin and celebrate his conquering of our sin in heaven. And this morning, I hope, I pray for those of you that have been through terrible things that I wish you never would have been through. You saw things, you felt things, you heard things, you lived in things that you never should have. Or, I, hold on, I want to pause. I'm not going to say that that God ordained for you to go through, that God permitted you to go through. I pray that you would know that the scriptures are sufficient, that there is a pattern both in the life of Joseph and in the very end. Let me ask you this. Jesus endured all of the things that he did because in enduring those things, maintaining the character that he ought to and the integrity that he ought to, He was able to accomplish eternal salvation for all of us. And let me say this in closing. When we respond to trauma the way God tells us to, there are many, including ourselves and God, that will benefit from us living like Christ through it. For us maintaining and seeking the right response You have no doubt had those experiences before where you've had a a close friend or a spouse or a child who has gone through unspeakable trauma and they just sit in your arms and lifelessly weep. Everything is broken and they don't know what to do. I would encourage you today to follow the example of the scriptures as that scripture in Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured trauma, the cross. He did that for us. And this morning, I hope, I've tried to strike a balance here today. I hope that God would have 
allowed some of these truths that have resonated with me to help you. I hope that they have called us to the Lord's table ultimately, seeing that Joseph is just a picture of Christ, because that's certainly the truth.